Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Natural Mama's Autism Podcast. I'm Lola Dada Ali. In our last episode, we had a conversation with a neurodiverse family that gave us a glimpse into their views on love and marriage. In this episode, we touch upon neurodiverse family members of a different kind. For those of you who have not listened to this podcast from the beginning, I'm not only an autism mom, but the older sister to Kunle, an autistic man with an intellectual disability. As autism awareness campaigns have gained traction over time, society is starting to take steps in the direction of progress in certain ways. As I've mentioned in a previous episode, There are now support groups in the autism community that were few and far between decades ago. Perhaps my other younger brother, Wale, and I could have benefited from such a group. Both of us internalized our baby brother's diagnosis and negative societal treatment of him in our own ways. With the gift of time, hindsight, and age, I now realize that I took on responsibility that made me have to age prematurely in some ways. At times, I moved in spaces as both daughter and third parent, which put me in a position where I felt great responsibility when it came to my baby brother's care and ultimate well-being. In addition to being a daughter and third parent, I was also a young Black girl growing up in mostly white suburban spaces. My brothers, both Black boys at that time, did the same. We grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago. My childhood is a mix of very fond and, at times, troubling memories that reflects the duality of a nation that grows increasingly diverse every single day yet struggles with hundreds of years of systemic racism and inequality. To our knowledge, we were the very first Black family to have ever moved to our suburb. A couple of Black families came later, but the student population never quite made it to 1%. The reason why I know that is because we tracked it in high school. We were supposed to have a 1% party but that never came to pass. We lived in a great school district at the time with vast resources. Our teachers were relatively well-paid. I remember a high school teacher telling me that a teacher opening became available and hundreds of hopefuls applied. Our sports programs were also well-funded and we regularly had teams in multiple sports good enough to compete at the statewide championship level. I played club sports with some of the best basketball players in the state and the region. My brother and I would later obtain Division I scholarships for football and basketball, respectively. I was a kid who loved school and enjoyed the academic rigor my schooling provided me. I was a nerd jock in many ways and was grateful for a school system where I didn't have to sacrifice one for the other. But in the midst of so much good, that underbelly was always there. Again, reflecting America overall. In our formative years, 
Wale and I periodically experienced insults hurled at us, not because of anything we actually did, but for who we were. As early as age five, I would hear the N-word hurled at me for the very first time. It is one of my earliest childhood memories. The N-word would be hurled at Wale around the same age. I'm three years older than him, so I would play protector and beat up or threaten to beat up anyone who called him outside of his name. But being a child myself, I couldn't protect my brothers from everything. I would quickly learn that I couldn't even protect myself either. I remember being in high school physics class when a classmate approached me and said that he knows that I would have no problem getting into college. At first, I thought it was a compliment, so I smiled. Before I could get the words out to say, thank you, he quickly followed up with, because you're Black. In another instance, I would later have a high school counselor ask me if college was even an option for someone like me. Later that year, I would nearly be arrested for suspicion of burglary, simply for sitting in my own car in front of my own home at the age of 17. A police officer wanted to question me for sitting in my car as I read a note. He said that due to a rash of burglaries in the area, he needed my license. When he saw that the address of the license matched the mailbox of the home I sat in front of, the look on his face turned from a look of genuine shock to one of slight embarrassment. It was one of many examples throughout my childhood and adolescence where someone was trying to tell me that I didn't really belong. Although I was as close to a native daughter as one could get in this town, I would get these occasional reminders that some people openly viewed me as less than, as not worthy of living there. My childhood, and by extension, my brother's childhoods, couldn't be any more different than my parents. When they were growing up and coming of age, everyone looked like them back home in Nigeria. They wouldn't learn what racism even was until they stepped foot on American soil and learned this country's ways. So, while my parents' first realization of being Black in America came when both of them were fully formed adults, our first brushes with racism presented much, much earlier in life. So, when it came to navigating the space, my little brother Wale turned to me for guidance and advice on navigating America in your formative years within a Black body. It would be his telling of a story to me that would be the foundation of a family secret amongst us that we wouldn't tell our own parents until weeks after the brutal murder of George Floyd. So in this episode, I sat down with Wale and asked him to recount the story of the day when he and Kunle went for a drive around our very own neighborhood decades ago when they were both teenagers. 
Okay, so uh, basically, yeah, I just got my license maybe like a year or two. Still a relatively new driver. Um, just driving around. At that time, Kunle had liked to, just like right now, he likes to just go out and, you know, and drive around and just see different routes and just see just the scenery and listen to music and dance and whatever have you. So we were just driving around on um, one of those typical, like, I believe it was like a late afternoon. Uh, we were driving around and, you know, and like, like I said, I just got my license. So everything was by the book. Um, as far as like, you know, stopping at stop signs, making sure you're behind the white line and whatever. So everything's by the book. And um, I made a a turn, I believe. And I was just driving down the street and it was like still like off and like um, in one of the subdivisions. And all of a sudden the police come and we were jamming. Like we had the music on, Kuna was dancing and, you know, we were just having a good time. And the music came, or um, I'm sorry, the police came and stopped us. And, uh, you know, they asked you for the typical, like, license and, and registration and whatnot. And I don't even think I even asked them, like, what am I, why am I being stopped or whatever? It wasn't even a question that, that I didn't even think, because at that point, I was just like, oh, the police are here. Come on, just calm down. We'll be okay. Um, I gave them all the proper identification. And all of a sudden, they were asking me to come out of the car. Right? And I'm coming out of the car. And this is just right around the time where, like, you know, like Kunle had, you know, finally like put on his own seatbelt. Like we didn't have to do it for him. You know, he put on his own seatbelt and he would, he wouldn't like open the door to the car or anything. He would just kind of just sit there, grab the handle and just dance and just do his own thing. So he sees me get out of the car and he's still relatively calm at that point. But all of a sudden, then I was like told to be like, put my hands on the, on the hood of the car and I'm on the hood of the car. And these guys, I believe there were there were two officers. It might have been more that came after that. But I know at that present moment, there were two officers. So I was right in the front of the car, on the hood of the car. And Kunle was just kind of just watching me. And then, um, I don't know if it's like a, uh, as we know now, it's more of a, of a comfort thing. Or maybe it could be either a comfort thing or a, a, uh, a sense of like um, nervousness in which he starts to rock forward and back forward. so i mean there's two different rocks like there's like the forward and back rock in which he's dancing and then there's that forward and rock back in which he's just in turbo mode you know what i mean that's how he's really either agitated or really nervous or he just doesn't understand what's going on and i think that's like his thing of comfort or whatever it may be and he went from the slow rock and i could just see him because i was on the hood to like the turbo rocket. He was moving just bomb, 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 forward and back. And at that point, that's when the officer's car went up like, yo, what's up with the guy in the in the passenger seat? And I kept telling them that, you know, he can't talk. And it wasn't, the way I always describe Kunle, I, I didn't like, you know, it wasn't like the, um, how it is now as far as like, you know, there's, uh, he's on the spectrum, you know, he's autistic or whatever it is. It was at that point, it was like, oh, you know, your brother's a retard. And that word to me, I never, I just, I always hated that word. You know what I mean? So my, my description was, I, I guess I could have been more descriptive, but my description was he can't talk. He can't talk. You know, I just remember feeling at that point, like, man, like, do not do anything to my brother. You know what I mean? Don't do anything. Do whatever you want to me. Whoever. Mind you, we didn't do anything wrong. 
I still don't even know why, why we're even in this position. And it was like, just don't do anything to my brother because he's innocent. You know what I mean? Like he had no idea what was going on. And uh, the I remember them screaming something like along the line. A lot of this is like kind of like, I don't know if I like blocked it from my memory or it was just like one of those times in your life where you're just like, you know, like an out-of-body experience type thing. But um, I just remember them going over to the passenger side and saying, get out of the car, get out of the car. And they're literally screaming at this kid. And I'm thinking like, he may or may not understand what they're saying, but in his mind, he's looking at his older brother on the hood of the car. And he's looking like, man, my whole world, this is obviously autistic. People are on the spectrum. They like everything in the routine, everything the same. So when something comes that's different than it's out of their norm, it throws them completely off. So now that I know more about that, I can only imagine the things that were going on in his mind and his body. Uh, they're like, get out of the car, get out of the car. And uh, I just kept screaming, he can't talk, he can't talk, leave him alone, leave him alone. And I don't know what came over them or what transpired exactly after that like particular point, what exactly transpired, because it was almost like as quickly as it all happened, as quickly as we got pulled over, I'm out of the car, I'm on the hood, Kunai's rocking back and forth. All of a sudden it was like, okay, you guys are good. Um, here's your here's your license and registration. Have a good evening. So it was kind of like, whoa, like at that point, I I, I like turned to Kunai and, and so at, at that point, Kunai, I, I do remember now, I remember this part, like Kunai, um, he used to do this thing where he would bite his hand, right? So it was almost like, like he looked at me like, yo, yo, we got to go get these guys, you know what I mean? Like type thing, like something, you know, like, because it, it wasn't like he was, um, he, he wasn't attacking me, but he, I remember turning to him and then he looked back at me and he did this thing like, hit his head and then bite his hand, you know, like, and it was kind of like a, um, Yo, do we uh what you know, I'm ready now, you know what I mean? Like they done turned me up now, I'm ready to go. You know, at the present moment, I didn't know what was going on, but now I'm ready. But it was just it like it was very uh definitely I, I mean for me it was a traumatic experience to, to the idea that I mean I've never been in in that particular situation before. Uh and I know Kunai's never experienced anything like that. So for him to to go through that was like, man, I, I can only imagine the, the uh, emotions that were going through his mind and his body. But I mean, obviously, like, the fact that they let us go that quickly, it's obvious that there was no reason to pull us over in the first place. You know what I mean? They probably just saw two, two uh, black kids driving around the neighborhood and they were like, yo, let's go find out what they're doing until they found out that one of the kids in particular was, you know, special needs. And they're like, oh, let's let them go. Obviously, we have nothing here. You know what I mean? Man, that was, that was something else, <laughs> to say the least. As a big sister, I always wondered what would have happened if they hadn't listened to Wale actually finished walking over to that side of the car and opened the door. I don't recall 
ever asking Wale that in real time. Perhaps I didn't want to scare him further in that moment. Perhaps in that moment, I didn't want to know. I just recall the fear shoot through my body as he told me this that very first time and how I was grateful to God that things didn't end up worse. But I knew that day that innocence was lost. If that police officer could open that door in that, in that particular moment, who knows if Kuna would have jumped out thinking that this guy is trying to attack him. He's trying to defend himself, not really fully understanding. And the first thing they're going to do is just pull for their gun and do something to Kuna. And then it becomes like, okay, well, he's a special needs kid. Yeah, but he came out of the car. But yet they opened up the car, but he's not verbal. So yeah, like, of course, like, it's, it's like divine intervention, you know, that it stopped at that present moment as opposed to it escalating to something else that, God forbid, something else would have happened. And that's, that's definitely a scary thought. And then you, you take it all the way back to the fact that we're pulled over for what? Absolutely nothing. You know what I mean? We ended up not telling our parents about this story until shortly after the murder of George Floyd. It is not that Wale and I had completely forgotten all that had happened to us growing up as one of the few Black kids in a mostly white suburb. But his murder, this murder, for some reason seemed to have sparked enough of an awakening in enough people who did not look like me or members of my family. It was seeing this response to racism, something that had been a regular part of my life that made me recount to my parents this very story and other stories of what it felt like to grow up as one of the few Perhaps it was the need to be the protector, but this event would turn out to be one of the foundational reasons why I would choose to become an attorney. We needed somebody in the family who can navigate a network of laws to protect our family's most vulnerable family member. What I didn't know is that that would later come in handy in life when I would give birth to two autistic babies. Coincidence? I don't think so. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or any major podcast platform you may be listening to this episode on. If you are interested in learning more about the genesis of this podcast, please check out our website at notyourmamasautism.com. In our next episode, we will talk about policing practices with neurodiversity in mind through the eyes of one municipality's retired police sergeant, a man who is credited with spearheading nationally recognized policing practices in this space that were birthed in part from tragedy. See you soon. Not Your Mama's Autism podcast is hosted and written by my mom, Lola Dada Ali 
and it's also co-written and produced by me, Felong. My dad, little sister Alero, and I are all occasional contributors. My dad, Tosinali, also helps produce sometimes. Big thanks to my aunt, Wolani Williams-Ali, who did our graphic design. See you guys soon.